Welcome to How I Raised My First Million Podcast, where we deep dive into founders and fund managers and how they secure their first investments. Support Asian Hustle Network by subscribing to our newsletter on AsianHustleNetwork.com and attend our annual Uplifter Conference in Las Vegas in 2024. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a very first episode of How I Raised My First Million Podcast by Asian Hustle Network. Today, we have a very special guest. His name is Jerry Ting, also one of my really good friends. So Jerry started Eversort in 2016 and raised a total of $155.6 million, according to Crunchbase. What's unique about his journey is that when he started raising his seed round in 2019, 11 months after he raised his Series A, a year after he raised his Series B, and now he's at a Series C. Jerry, that is a remarkable journey, and welcome to the podcast. Cool. Thank you for having me on, and I'm so honored to be the first person. So just delighted to be here. Of course, of course. So tell us more about Eversort. What is this company? What inspired you to create this company? And how old were you at the time when you first started the company? <laughs> I was 24 years old, I think. And so I was uh, very young. Um, and the idea behind Eversort came to me when I was an account executive in the Bay Area. And then I went to Boston uh, for law school. And I was going to law school at Harvard and I was studying to become a lawyer. And, you know, Asian parents are very proud of me. You know, you're a Harvard lawyer. And inside, I was incredibly depressed, right? And so I worked so hard to, to get to that uh, academic achievement. And then I realized I didn't want to actually practice law. And, and that's where the idea for Eversor actually came to me was I was sitting there studying, ready to become a young lawyer. And the stuff was just so manual, right? You're like manually negotiating contracts, reading contracts, managing contracts. And it was 2016 at the time and cars were starting to drive by themselves. And I was like, as a millennial, why am I sitting here reading this stuff? And so that's what Eversort does. Eversort builds AI for some of the biggest companies in the world uh, where we help you negotiate the contracts, draft the contracts, approve it, manage all the agreements without needing humans. And, and I think that's a really important thing because we were doing AI long before the current uh, AI wave. And I think it's exciting what we've seen happen in the last 12 months. No, that's remarkable, right? I think you guys definitely got to it before everyone else did. And you're right. Like there's a lot of manual process in the legal contract side. And you know, I was reading through your website last night. I was reading through it this morning as well. And I was like, man, like this is like, I knew what you did. I knew who you are. And then I read your platform again, reading all the articles on you. I'm like, this is remarkable, right? Especially in 2016, where it's not mainstream yet. Like I'm kind of curious too, because this podcast obviously how I raised the first million. How long did it take for you to get your first angel check for your company? It was the hardest. It was it was really, really hard because we didn't know anybody. Like we we literally were, I think at that point, five guys uh just coding. And and we had maybe three companies that were just talking to us that were interested, but no, but no clients. So we had a prototype in zero dollars of revenue. Um, but we always felt that it was gonna be big. Right. So when we were thinking about, hey, we're going to graduate, what are we going to do? Um, we realized that we had to raise funding. And I think for a lot of the listeners out there, raising funding is probably not the thing you should do. Most companies, I think, should not raise funding because then, you know, we can talk later, Brian, about pros and cons of venture and how that kicks off a certain cycle. But for us, we thought it was going to be, you know, an IPO type of opportunity. And so we decided to go raise funding. We knew nobody. We, we literally went on the Internet. I remember sitting there in like a library, I think. And I Googled technology enterprise software investors. And it was like the list of, you know, all the big names. And I didn't even know what a VC firm did, to be honest. So I was 
on LinkedIn, like looking at like, what is an associate? What is a principal? What is a partner? And how do I reach out to these people? So I literally just like in like outbounded to them on LinkedIn. And that and that's how we got going. It was it was incredibly hard. I, I think it took us six months, a, a lot of learnings, a lot of self-reflections, a lot of, you know, were we wrong? Is this a bad idea? Should we go back to our normal lives and stop doing this thing? Um, and I and I can comment if it's appropriate, uh, the difference between fundraising in the Bay Area versus uh, Boston and New York, which I thought was you know very very different. I mean, I could definitely relate, especially back in 2016. I feel like the ecosystem in Boston, New York, wasn't as developed as it is today, right? I always say nowadays it's a little bit more even playing field in these cities, but back then, like SF wins the cake, right? That's where you should be fundraising for sure. And it's crazy how you mentioned that you have to go to LinkedIn to look at different job titles, look at different people, and do like a cold outbound. Did you have any success doing any outbound that way, or did you start asking your friends for warm connections? How'd you how'd you bridge the process? It was a mix of all of that. Like none of it was actually really working. <laughs> so like I can't say, hey, that's a silver bullet. Do that. It was it was a little bit of hustle to be honest, right? And that's the name that's in the name of the, of the brand. Um, but there were a couple of people that I got on LinkedIn. And, a couple of people that I, uh, you know, went back to my high school network because I'm from the Bay Area. Where did these guys end up? Okay, this person's at a VC firm. I haven't talked to them in ten years. Uh, can I reach out to them? Yeah, I did. Right. So it was a it was a lot of like just trying to scrap things together, and it, it was tough. Right. So when we raised our first million dollars, um, you know, some of the things that I got feedback on were, hey, look, you're you're a young person, right? You're a first time founder, you know, you haven't done this before. And so we're going to have to give you a lower price because we're taking a huge risk on you, you know? And, and I heard that feedback over and over again. And yeah, maybe I wasn't very good at fundraising either. If I'm thinking backwards and being honest, but I learned a lot every single time I met somebody, right? And I think for me, like going in, doing a first meeting, you know, somebody responds back from a firm, hey, I'm a technology investor. I'm interested. You get 30 minutes. You know, I, I'm, I'm sweating before those 30 minutes. Right. You know, I'm polishing the pitch. You know, how do you start? It's like Shark Tank. Right. It really, really felt that way. And it still matters. It, it does matter how you show up, what you wear, how professional you are. That stuff matters because when the investors, the first check in, they're not betting on, you know, necessarily the traction or the, how good the product is. They're looking at really three things. They're looking at how big the market is. So if everything happens that you say will happen, how, how big of a company is it? Um, who are your competitors? Has this been done before? And then third, and perhaps more, most important, you know, what's the quality of the founder? Is it somebody that's going to throw in the towel when things get tough, or are they going to dig in and, and survive? And I think it was just a lot of hustle. And you know, I wish I could say it was one thing, but it was asking friends. I, I even thought about which uncle do I have? Like, you know, that, that one guy who's a doctor who's got a little bit more money. Maybe he can give me 50K. Like, you know, it was it was that kind of... Oh, man. Oh, man. This brings back a lot of memories on my side. Not to say that, you know, ironically, like Asian Hustle Network never raised a million, raised 650,000, right? But I remember those hustle days, man, like just going through LinkedIn. It's funny because I got most of my checks through LinkedIn, which is the crazy part. <laughs> you know? Like, I was about to throw in a tower of fundraising, but then people would DM me and be, hey, I heard you're fundraising. Like, can you tell me more? And I was like, oh, shoot. So I think the beauty of it too is putting yourself out there, talking to more people, talking to your family and friends that you are fundraising. And then like at the most strangest times, like people come to you to be hey, like I want to offer to help. So going back to like your first six months of like just out cold bound outreach and everything, like walk me through that mindset of yours. Like what was going through that mind every time you're about to go to, into a pitch and 
let's talk about rejection as well, right? Rejection is the name of the game with fundraising. Like most founders seem, can't seem to wrap their head around rejection. Like, oh my God, my idea is bad. Maybe I should quit. Maybe I should pivot, whatever. Like, how did you handle rejection? And what was going through your mind after hearing like the first like five to 10 rejections that you heard? I think I heard 25 rejections. I, I think I heard a, a boatload of rejections. Um, and they're all different flavors. Because I think a VC won't tell you, no, they'll say something else. Because they don't want to eventually ruin the relationship in case you do take off. And, you know, honestly, I did fundraise from some of them the second round and the third round. And so it's an ecosystem. Um, it was really tough, right? And, and for me, like just talking about the founder mentality, um, I was carrying a lot of the burden because I didn't want my team distracted, right? We were just getting off the ground. Product was just starting to happen. We have a first couple set of um, accounts that were talking to us. And I, I didn't want my team in all of these meetings because I was kissing a lot of frogs. Like, and it was, I, I didn't want them to get demoralized, right? And so that was, that was a thing there where it was like a divide and conquer. And I told them, hey, you guys run the business. I'm going to step back as CEO for however long it takes. And I'm going to go out on, on the road. So I, I literally started traveling, right? So I was in Boston, then I went to New York, and then I flew to San Francisco. And when I flew to San Francisco is when things started unlocking. Because I, I what I noticed in Boston and New York was, um, the, the VCs are more conservative, right? So even though your company is just a pre-revenue company, it's an early prototype company, you know, I had one VC ask me, hey, what's a three-year financial statement? What's your forecast for three years? I, I could build it, but it's going to be completely fake. Like, I, I will tell you I'm lying to you when I give it to you, right? Because who knows, right? And it's never done this before. And it's, you know, it's AI company. It's a high potential company, but there's startup costs associated with that. And so the, the ways I heard no to your question was, oh, you're too early, or we don't think the market's big enough, or we don't think lawyers are going to want technology, or it was this or this, it was everything but no. And I think that's what actually was most demoralizing was that I, like, these are smart people that I look up to, right? They're, they're early investors in the big companies that are public. And so when they say, hey, look, your, your, your TAM, your total addressable market is too small, you know, I would go home and think, shoot, maybe it is too small. Maybe lawyers are conservative. Maybe lawyers don't want tech. Uh, what I'll say is, since that day to now, every single year, we've more than doubled our revenue. And, and I think that's that's where you just got to believe in what you're building. And you really got to say, hey, look, if I can sell it to one person, then 10, then 100, then 1,000, you know, I, I think right now we've identified over 460 million different clauses across our hundreds of clients. Um, it's not too small. They, the, the VCs just didn't understand. And maybe I didn't do a good enough job communicating where this thing was going to go. But it requires them to believe. And it's your job to convince That is... That is remarkable. No, I mean, the VC has definitely said it's too small or didn't invest. It's probably kicked themselves right now. You know, I mean, you definitely, every single article I read about each series that you raise is like, oh, it's like ever sort of doubled their revenue, doubled, doubled their revenue, doubled their grill, grew their team, opened up a Boston office, opened up a San Francisco office. And that's remarkable. So let's walk me through like the first time you actually received your check, right? I mean, I read an article on Forbes, how your angel and investment crew it's pretty remarkable like jeff bezels mark zuckerberg bill gates executives from walt disney accenture roping roping gray sep like dude did you reach out to them on linkedin or how did you get connected to like all these crazy like angel checks coming to your angel round so it, it's like darkest before the dawn or whatever that batman uh phrase is that, that i love it's it was it was like zeros at boston zeros in new york and it was Thanksgiving time and I came home to visit my parents. 
And so on the flight back, I was BDRing, right? I was like, hey, I'm going to be in town for like four days. Like, can you meet with me? So my parents thought that I was coming home to see them. You know, I was like literally got in my high school car and started driving around, knocking on doors, right? So I remember driving from Fremont uh, to San Jose, where I met with actually an incubator. And the incubator was our first was our first time sheet. Um, I knew something was changing because I had already gotten rejected so many times. I was also changing my deck, changing my stories. It was like a more polished rock. Um, and I, I went in and I pitched and there was a big room and they had all these you know corporate logos on the wall and other sponsors. And I, I was like, this is, there's no way I'm getting this. This is like, if I can't get Boston VC, this is, this is like the big league. This is a San Francisco barrier VC. And the managing director um, looked at me and he said, I've actually done a lot of research. I've actually heard some people say you're fundraising like you're saying. I heard you were coming. Um, let me think about it. And then that night he sent me a term sheet and I couldn't believe it. I, I didn't even know what it was. I, I was like a PDF document. I opened it and I was reading it and I was like, I think, I think this guy wants to give me money, right? Because, you know, I've been rejected so many times. I, what is this thing? Right. So I, I called my co-founders and I said, I got one. Like it was the first, it's like fishing. It was almost like you're out there, you're casting, right. And you're changing your bait, you're changing the tackle. You're looking at the sun or the wind. And I, I got one. Um, it, but then that was the first out of four days. And so I, I used that to go to the second meeting, which is on, which is the second day. And I, and I walked in, I was like, here's our pitch. Um, and oh, by the way, I, I, I got one term sheet. And so, um, you know, thanks, thanks for the meeting, but I'm actually probably just going to go with them because nobody gave me a term sheet. And the visa was like, wait, hold on, you've got a term sheet. Now we want to spend time. And so I think that's where FOMO started to kick in was like, you just got to get the first one. And, and now you're starting to build what's what I call deal. Now it's starting to get interesting. Like if somebody else wants it, maybe I got to take it. Right? And so by the fourth day, I was like, you know, I got a term sheet. I got, you know, four firms who are doing diligence. You know, there's a couple of accounts that you guys can talk to that are going to sign with us. I promise. But they haven't signed yet, but you can talk to them. And by the time I went back to Boston from uh, San Francisco, I had three term sheets and I literally had them printed out in my backpack. And I was like going to the flight and I remember calling my co-founder and saying, I have three pieces of paper in my backpack. Like, and, and that was, that was a great, that was the best feeling. Oh man. I love that story. And you're absolutely right. Right. Where I think it's so smart. It's almost, I mean, not to say this in a comparative way, it's not apples to apples, but it's almost like having a job offer. Right. If you're applying for a job, you get a, a job offer that has decent salary. You take it to the next interview and be, hey, this person's paying me this much at this company. I want this. And it's always a better offer and term sheet. And I feel like that's the most comparable concept to what you just mentioned, right? Creating a FOMO effect of like, well, am I missing on this opportunity? Why does this person have a term sheet? It's a psychology play on that. And it's very smart for you to even do that. Right. So congratulations. Wait, so you mentioned that this is what is it, a, like a fund that invested into your company? Out of curiosity, like how'd you get like the introduction to like, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, and Bill Gates? Like we, we need to hear that story for sure. So we were um, an early check at a VC firm that was created where they were the investors in that firm. And so the idea of the, in the name of the firm is Village Global, and I'm you know very proud and very honored that they, that they work with us and still very active with them today. Um, but the idea was, you know, all of these great entrepreneurs that come up and, you know, made, made their wealth and they wanted to back the next generation of entrepreneurs. So it was a community type of VC fund where you actually get matched up with some of them. You get to meet them. There's community events. I, I met Jeff Bezos. I met the then CEO of ServiceNow. So it's like when you get your foot in the door, th then you kind of unlock sort of the environment and the ecosystem that you want to be in. 
it's it's getting into the door that's hard. And so, um, you know, Village was a great investor for us and um, actually helped us not just in our first round, but actually our second round of funding where they led. Ooh, that is, I love, I love that story a lot. And um, I kind of want to talk more about, as you mentioned earlier, like you took a step back so you can fundraise and, you know, go on the road and, and meet all these different VCs. How would you meet your co-founders? They sound like remarkable people. I think you can make luck happen. So the first thing I'll say is I can't code. And so for me, when I was thinking about this idea and it's an AI company, and how are you going to do that if you can't code? Right. So for me, that was the first barrier to get over was like, how am I going to build this thing? And and so what I would encourage the, the, the audience to think about is like, how do you get active in the community? Right. And so like, how do you get involved with Asian Hustle Network? How do you get involved with the entrepreneurial ecosystems of your communities? So for me, even though I couldn't code, I was a lawyer, right? So I was volunteering in the Boston area with entrepreneurs. I was like helping people start their companies. I was like, hey, this is like an IP uh, rights management thing. Like, so I was I was in the ecosystem as a service provider. And that's where I met my co-founder because he was my client. And I was volunteering in Boston. And I was just, you know, friendly guy out there kind of hustling, right? And, you know, he was, a, you know, PhD track from MIT, a researcher taught AI at MIT. And I said, look, you know, I literally sent him an email. Hey, this is not as your lawyer. This is just as a human being, as a friend. But I have this idea. Would you meet me at Starbucks? And I was so nervous, right? Like, I, I didn't know anybody that can code. I don't come from that background. And so he took 30 minutes out, came to see me at Starbucks. That meeting went from 30 minutes to two hours. And then we walked away from that as like a little team. And I think that's a very special moment in a company's life cycle. When it's like, you have an idea, you've done the Googling, you've done the research, and then you have a buddy. But that's that's a company. But before that, it's like one dude. When you have a co-founder, now you have a team. And I think that was a critical moment for us. That sounds remarkable, right? And I read a statistic out there that says that if you're a solo co-founder, you're more likely to fail in your startup compared to if you have multiple co-founders, right? So the success rate you have with a different co-founder is significantly higher if you work with someone else. In your case, you have two. <laughs> You're like, hey, I can lean them both two, in two person, you know? So the yeah. other one, um, so the first one, uh, my CTO co-founder is Amin. And he's still our CTO today, and he's fantastic. Um, my second co-founder is still with us, too. He's our chief operating officer, chief product officer. His name is Jake. And, you know, also part of the story of, you know, he and I were both in law school. We're actually classmates. And we didn't want to be lawyers, so we both went to go work at BCG. So, like, we were like the black sheep, so to speak, right? It's like, everybody's becoming a lawyer. We're like management consultants we like look at each other it's like that spider-man was like hey you're kind of weird too right so like then but i i asked him three times with my co-founder he rejected me the first two times the third time i just scammed him into it because um we we're applying for an incubator and I, I was like hey if we're applying for an incubator it's better to have three people because three people believe versus two people so i just put his name down because he was my buddy anyways and so once we got into the accelerator he's like i guess i'm coming and that's that's how we got going Oh my goodness! Uh, I hope he. Uh, I hope he knows the full story before he listens to this podcast. He's gonna be like, "Oh wow, I got." Oh, he this. knows the story. He tells it to his <laughs> wife. Yeah, I rejected Jerry twice, and then the third time he put me on an application. And, and you know, once you get it, like in the early days of a startup, um, going from idea from zero to to one, where one being maybe early product market fit, your first round of funding, whatever it is, um, you gotta celebrate these milestones. Like the million dollars is the the end of a series of outcomes. 
but getting your first co-founder, getting into something like an accelerator, um, getting an advisor to join your advisory board who maybe has been an investor and operator before, these are the building blocks that then gets to a million dollars. I don't think the million dollars is where you start. And I think that's where uh, Silicon Valley and tech investing got sideways was um, between 2019 and 2022, it was, you know, let me raise the money first and then I'll do all the hard things. I think that's not a great model. No, I think, that, I think you're absolutely right. I think that... I mean, nowadays, I mean, VC funding has got a lot more difficult and people are looking actually at business models now just because they realize that it's not a good idea, not a good idea to throw like 10 million, 25 million to a seed in Series A round, right? I mean, Series A is okay, but maybe not seed, right? Let's build something first to see how it works, to see some traction, and then let's add more money. That's probably the best way to go. And the next question I have is, what kind of strategies do you feel like that you deploy that was unique to your own personality when you were going out fundraising, right? And I feel like this is a good question to ask because everyone kind of views it as like a black and white thing. If I go out and ask enough people, it's a numbers game. But there's certain little things about everyone's personality that makes them very unique for every fundraising situation. And I want to hear what your unique strategies are that only that is only unique to Jerry Tink. I bring the hype. I bring the energy. Right? And, and, and that was the feedback. After, even when I was getting rejected, hey, your market's too small, but you are very passionate. <laughs> and I was like, at least I'm passionate. Uh, you know, because so that was like, that was really core to me because I was really excited about the idea. Right. And, and I think like investors are human, right? If you think about their jobs, they have investors. Their job is to find the next outlier breakout opportunity. So they have to believe. And investing in the early stage is as much about the mind as it about the heart. And so for me, I've always brought the energy. I, I told stories, right? I, I try to back up my claims with stories. Like, hey, I was on the way here. I was talking to a prospect. I was talking to a professor. I was talking to a lawyer who's been practicing for 20 years. Who's like, Jerry, where have you been? Or else I wouldn't have done all this stuff for 20 years. So I, I would bring a lot of stories, a lot of humanity into my fundraising process. And I think that's actually why people took a chance on me. I was 24 years old, first time founder. But um, the first check, I remember the investor who's a dear, dear friend and should be on this podcast. He said, I knew that even if you didn't succeed, you would kill yourself trying. And as an investor, I like to hear that. And I'm like, I will kill myself trying because it's your money is my credibility. That's that is that's awesome. I think uh, that's a good takeaway for our, our listeners as well, just having the energy, believing yourself. And I, I hear from other founders too, that the fundraising process is a lot about storytelling than it is like factual numbers at the very beginning, right? It's about how you make the person feel. It's about how you about how you share your story. And once you find a common point where they could connect with your story, then now you have a stronger pitch, right? A lot of founders, I think a common mistake for the first deck and the first time they're fundraising is like, hey, this is our market right here, which yeah, is absolutely important, right? This is what we're trying to do. Like, give us money now so we can go out there and take the market on now. But a lot of it's storytelling, right? It's about how you present yourself, as you said before, what you wear, how you, your energy, um, how how fast, how passionate you believe in your idea. Because as you said before, as you do all these things, you create your own luck and your own aura. Like, imagine yourself as like an energy ball and everyone's like coming towards you because you like create this aura of like invincibility, right? That's so important with fundraising for your first check. And this, and before I get to the last question, I do want to highlight again, like how'd you, I mean, you started fundraising in 2019, which is three years after you started, right? And after that, you completely accelerated. What, what like, tell us a tip, like what was going on? Like, how, how did that even happen? 
right? Going from 2019 to like 2023, like four years later, raising $155.6 million. How'd you get to each series so quickly? And the other question I want to ask is, what was the need to like raise that much money in a short amount of time? Yeah, let me answer the first one and then I'll come to the second one. It, it was one of these like super scale up type of stories. Um, we won this award from uh, Deloitte um, Fast 500 or uh, Deloitte 500, one of those awards uh, where they said that we're like the 16th fastest growing company in North America. And, you know, we grew like 3000% over that period of time you're describing. And, and what I what I say unifies every single round and every single step of that journey is uh, a focus around customer, a focus around customer and the culture of the company you're building. And, and I think the two are actually the same thing, right? Because if you really focus on the people you're hiring and you, you make them passionate and you keep the bar really, really high, and when you see BS in your company, you say, no, that's not okay. I'm going to change that. I'm going to keep the bar high. And then when a customer is not happy, you get on the plane, you fly in person, you see them, right? And you bring your team. And then every, every single uh, week, I would meet with my salespeople and I'll say, tell me about every one of your deals. How can I help you here? How can I help you there? We didn't call one-on-ones one-on-ones. We call them um, hustle, section, hustle sessions or co-working sessions or um, jams. One guy called it jam sessions. But it was literally like, hey, Jerry, I'm talking to this customer. They don't want to buy from us because we're too small. Can you email the general counsel or can you email the CEO or the CFO? And I will literally sit there and I'll email them in that one-on-one. Like it was like we were brothers and sisters locking arms. And I remember there was one time we were at the end of a quarter and it was, a you know, we just started to have the concept of quarters where we were behind our number and, you know, we just, there was one deal I was going to make it, right? And I remember like the, the, the sales rep was telling me, you know, I've been emailing them, I've been calling them. It's been like five, six days. I'm getting a little nervous. What do you think that I should do? And I'm like, I'll call them. He's like, right here? I'm right here. I literally got my phone out, called the person, and then uh, I, I actually got the person to call. It was the CEO of a small company, uh, I think like a 200-person company. And and I was like, hey, you know, I, I, my rep is telling me that, you know, you're, you're getting all these buying signals. Um, why haven't you bought it? You can tell me. I'm the CEO. I'm not a salesperson. What's holding you back? And he's like, I've got to be honest with you. Like, it's just a little bit too expensive. And I'm worried that if you guys raise a lot of venture funding, you're going to hike the price on me. Okay, I hear you, brother. That's a real, these are real concerns. What if I give you a discount on year one? And then I give you a price protection for three years, but you do me a three-year deal so that your price stays the same, even if we raise another $100 million. Like it was like an executive to executive alignment. And so customer focus and helping your team is is so critical. Um, remind me of your second question. I just got passionate about that. Right? And I No, no, I, I love that story a lot, right? The second question was, uh, I mean, obviously your team was scaling pretty quickly. What made you feel like you need to raise series after series so quickly uh, year after year? It was very simple. Um, our salespeople were becoming effective. And I realized that if I put in another dollar, I can get $3 back. So it's either in product, you know, more features, you know, we, we launched a second product, we're launching our third right now. So we're a, now a multi-product company. So there's more there's more to sell in the bag. Um, there's more value to give to the customer. So it's a product, you know, how do you accelerate product? And then how do you take dollars to features, not just build stuff to build stuff, who cares? How does it move the business? Uh, then also like marketing efficiency, right? If we put in another dollar, but then we have a healthcare customer that's our first customer, we can put their name in the advertising to the other healthcare customers. Hey, we're starting to build a bit of traction, a bit of momentum. Right? So it was really thinking about, can I invest that money correctly and efficiently step-by-step? Step? And I think we never got ahead of our skis. You know, we're very disciplined even to today, you know, we're built, we're burning a lot less than our competitors. And so in a down economy, 
when you're financially disciplined and savvy, you can you can slow down in a recession. And then when the recession leaves, you can accelerate out, right? And so we saw that in COVID. We saw that, you know, with all the disruptions uh, with the war and with the um, social populist movements in the U.S. So there's been a lot of disruptions. Knowing when to go fast and be aggressive, knowing when to slow down and play defense, that's a skill of a CEO. No, that's a... I can I can say I can say it better myself. That is a, that it's the skill of a CEO, right? If you accelerate in the wrong time or pause at the wrong time, that's detrimental to your business. So, congratulations on our success story. The last question I have in this podcast is, what is your best memory of your younger self going through this process? It was my Series A actually. So it was uh, I think a year and a half after the first first round of funding. And I was, uh, I think at that point we were like 30 employees and still very, you know, very scrappy. And I'm in downtown San Francisco, but I have a bunch of meetings lined up. You know, the, the game keeps going, right? So, you know, you're raising a bigger amount, but you're doing similar things. And I remember there was one meeting that was actually 30 minute drive away, but I got out of the previous meeting with 15 minutes left to go. So I was late by the time I left the first meeting. And my chief of staff and I were together in South Park. And he goes, you know, he's, he's freaking out, right? Because he's like, I'm the chief of staff. Like, you know, here's your sandwich. We're already late. Like, we're, the Uber's, like, you know, not going to make it. And so this is back when the scooters were very popular. So I said, hey, man, let's just get a scooter. He's like, there is, the board is going to fire me if I put my CEO on a scooter without a helmet. And, you know, we're all, you know, kind of dressed up, right? So I'm like, screw it. We're hustling, right? So, you know, we got we to gotta cross Soma and it's not going to, we're not going to make it. And I'm not going to be late. Um, and so we got on a, we got on a scooter and he takes a picture of me and I'm you know, in a vest with a button up and I'm holding a sandwich. And, you know, that photo is, um, I don't think we do it that way now. Um, but, and then one of my board members did call me and was like, Hey, you need to not do that. Cause like there's risk of a CEO dying on the street, but uh, not wearing a helmet and breaking traffic laws. But, you know, that was a great memory, right? That, that photo was like the early days we were out there, you know, pounding on doors. Oh man, that's a... Uh... I mean, first of all, I'm glad things are okay. And second of all, I do agree with your board member. Like, that's the CEO at stake. Like, don't do that again. <laughs> we we zipped it. And we like we're on the streets with the cars. And you know, those are those are the funny days, right? So, you know, one yeah. advice that I have for uh, folks who are just starting out is the more time you can spend in person, especially when you're just, you know, getting things off the ground, the better. Right. You don't have these funny moments on Zoom. And I'm not advocating that everyone just be full time. You know, our company is a hybrid first company but your first couple of people when you're just building trust and building that vision being in person and getting on a scooter sometimes is not not the end of the yeah yeah i mean absolutely i i i love that story a lot like it i think i think i saw a quote recently that says there's beauty and misery and you know your first year starting your company there's so much misery your second year is still a lot of misery but then when you look back at it when things finally turn the corner like you don't get these moments back you know so treasure them now no matter how dark and gloom gloom it seems right now like you're gonna miss those times i had an executive who's taking two companies public and one sold and she's you know much much older than i am and i remember i was telling her i was you know we were turning a corner in a quarter we're building some better marketing stuff and and i was saying you know i i can't wait till it's q2 and then life would be better and she, she she said hey jerry i've done this you know for 20 plus years don't wish your life away because I've seen companies get acquired, I've seen companies go public. Um, but when that happens, that journey transitions, right? And in and, and and an acquisition context, uh, in some ways, that's when the journey ends for that independent company. So enjoy enjoy the steps to get there. That is what entrepreneurship is. And I think coming from her, who I think you know is uh, 30 years older than me, 
um, for me, that was a great lesson she gave me. No, that's beautiful. So, Jerry, uh, how can our listeners find out more about you, reach out to you, and learn more about Eversort? I'm the only thing. I'm actually pretty active because uh, I I message customers and they message me, and so I'm in my inbox. And so, uh, just Jerry Ting, T I N G, and Eversort, E V I S O R T, and good luck on your founding process, and just keep your head up and keep believing. Awesome. Thank you. We'll include all that in the show notes. But Jerry, thank you so much for being our episode one of How I Raised My First Million podcast. Thank you. Cool. Thank you, Brian. Hey, we hope you really enjoyed this podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to click on that subscribe button on whichever platform you listen to this podcast on. And come back next week for another episode of How I Raised My First Million with your host, Brian Pham.